I'm Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to Cardioscripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. And thank you for joining us on this Cardioscripts Classics episode, where we take a step back in time and explore literature that got us to where we are today. In part one of Vasodilators and Hefreth, Tracy is joined by Dr. Robert Page. Today on Cardioscripts, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Page, who is a professor in the departments of clinical pharmacy, physical medicine, and medicine at the University of Colorado Schools of Pharmacy and Medicine. Dr. Page is also a clinical pharmacy specialist for the Division of Cardiology, the Section of Advanced Heart Failure and Heart Transplant at University of Colorado Hospital. He is certainly an expert in all things heart failure and always a pleasure to catch up with and talk to about um, one of my favorite topics as well, which is chronic heart failure. So on behalf of Cardioscripts, I'd like to welcome you, Dr. Page. Thank you so much. This is a treat because we're mixing it up a little bit and breaking with our normal highlight one big trial format to have a foundational conversation. So covering some of the classic literature pertaining to afterload reduction in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. We are hoping that these new classic episodes that we record can help solidify folks' understanding and provide a reminder to why the gold standard therapies are such. And so we hope that you also have started to use these podcasts to support student resident and fellow journal clubs. And I think they're great to go back and go through some of the classic stuff that we don't always have time on a four, six, eight week rotation to cover in the depth that we would like to. You know, you bring up a really good point. When I think about these articles that we're going to talk about, it's almost like Star Wars. It's like episode one, two, and three, and leading into the next. And to me, when you dig back in the very, very beginning, there's a story. So we get to go all the way back. I think probably a good place to start with this conversation is a little pre-1986. So what were we doing with the standard therapy for heart failure? That was the thing. So we were, you know, what's so interesting is we were still trying to figure out what the pathophysiology of heart failure was. It was trying to figure out that relationship between the heart and the kidney. I mean, we weren't even, we were not even really thinking per se about neurohormonal activation, blah, blah, blah. And so the only things that we had at that time was DIG, <laughs> loop diuretics. And even then, the only outcome studies that we had was with DIG was the proved in the radiance trials, which were withdrawal studies and horrible, horrible study design and really didn't answer any questions at all. And so up to this point in time, I think that is what made this first paper so landmark. I think another really important but sexy point is that you will never see placebo-controlled trials like this, ever. (laughs) With such a profound impact on mortality. I mean, that's one of the things, but then the, with, but with the other caveat, particularly with the VHEFT-1 trial, when I look back on it, you know, we had, there were a lot of criticisms with this study. And I think in particularly, again, it's a VA setting, majority are going to be Caucasian males. And then three is the fact that the numbers are not 
as robust as what we're used to seeing nowadays with thousands of patients randomized. I, I think that's also, and then the other caveat that I always say is realize this was pre-beta blocker, pre-MRA, all of that. So again, this is actually probably by far the, the first in the beginning of the story. And like you said, placebo was digin diuretic. So we were building on a very narrow foundation of maybe therapies that hurt you more than help you. Just so people are aware, the VHEF trial was designed really to study the whole concept of vasodilation. So there were three arms. I think we like to forget that third arm altogether. <laughs> so hydralazine nitrate is the one that people remember that showed a benefit. But what else was in there, Dr. Page? That's the thing, crazicin. All right, so you and I, and when people look back on it now, they were like, oh my God, why in the world would they use this super high dose of praesicin? Well, you, when you and I were training, we used to use, that was in the guidelines, remember, for hypertension. Yes. It would say, particularly if you were a male with BPH, BPH. <laughs> you would, uh, that, was, that was our go-to. And, and, and again, from the All Hat trial, we now realize, of course, that it doesn't arrest, an alpha blocker doesn't arrest left ventricular hypertrophy. And so, you know, that arm of that all hat trial, you know, we kind of think, eh, we're not going to use that anymore. But I think it, it, again, the study design is quite intriguing. You're looking at hydralazine and isosorbide. You're looking at an afterload, preload combination versus pure afterload versus placebo. And I think that that, it really did answer the question of, do we need a combination of it or do, can we just get away with just pure afterload? And again, from the data, this study is not powered appropriately to really answer the question of mortality because I do know that the investigators took this to the FDA early, early, early to look at the potential for having a combo drug long before Bidel was even thought about. And they were like, you need to go back and redo. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and, and that third arm really hurt them from that standpoint because comparisons were done related to that as well. The numbers were impressive. So I think it's worth talking about the absolute risk reduction seen just comparing hydralazine nitrate to placebo was a, a little over 7% in mortality at a year. So they knew they were on to something. It just didn't reach that power. And so therefore, it's not appropriate to say it was statistically significant or it was impactful. But luckily, you know, hot on its tail in 1987 was the publication of the consensus trial. So right. tell folks a little more about consensus and where, where it kind of brought to us. You're right. We then had consensus. And I think what was unique about consensus is, again, it's taking patients who were class three and four heart failure. So, you know, these were the very advanced patients. They were randomized to, and again, you'll never find this again, placebo versus an ACE inhibitor, being that of enalapril. Now, you know, it's interesting, consensus, that protocol really drove practice for many, many years of that. Remember how we were taught always push the dose of the ACE. You've got to push the dose, push it, push it. And, and again, we can talk about this a little bit more, but, you know, they were using very high doses of enalapril, what, 10 BID, I mean, like 20 milligrams a day. I mean, but, and, and it, it really set the standard at that time for, again, push the dose. And then you had a lot of individuals like people like Milton Packer and whatever saying, you've got to have high dose in order to show a reduction in mortality. But the key thing is, is this study was appropriately powered. And when you look at the impact on mortality and the numbers needed to treat, 
I mean, it's pretty huge. Yeah. So six, right? Six. I mean, that is it. And and the other thing I like about this, if you look at the Kaplan-Meier, those curves split immediately. You know, unlike we see with beta blockers, which you do have to be on it for, you know, a month or so before we start seeing those curves split. But here, they split almost immediately. And I think that's something also to look at. And why getting a patient on an ACE or angiotensin blocker or whatever early on is so critical. But also, these were the most severe patients. And I will say, again, this is a part of the story, but when we look furthermore in the other ACE inhibitor trials, solve treatment, solve prevention, save, Again, it does tell a little bit of a story because again, each one of those studies had a very different patient population and it answered benefits in terms of ACE inhibitors. And so based upon that, that became the impetus for the VHEF2 trial. And so in my mind, with the VHEF2 trial, in which patients were randomized to receive either enalapril or hydralazine and isosorbide, it did two things. It answered the question of which is better. This idea now was evolving of neurohormonal activation and how can we arrest it? And I think um, that was one of the things that really answered. I know that a lot of people criticized the VHEP2 trial because it had two active treatments, but I honestly, Based on consensus, I don't think you could ethically conduct that no, study no. without having that arm. And the second thing is, is they powered it appropriately. Yes. Yeah. And to me, that was another thing. It's like they had learned from their past experiences. Well, I think you had a couple things on the head to me, like consensus patient population was different than a VHEFT patient population. Oh, absolutely. So it was hard to really compare the two in any meaningful way. I mean, we had a Scandinavian group of patients that were much sicker compared to like, you know, a Midwest VA patient. Like we just had a very different patient population. And when people think about how sick the consensus patients were, I think the overall mortality numbers really tell you. I mean, six-month mortality for the placebo arm was 44%. Yep. These exactly. were these were what we would consider the sick patients who are at this point again on digoxin and diuretic. They were gonna they had a close to 50% chance of dying at six months. To reduce it down to 26% at six months is remarkable. But if you you know you bring up another good point, Tracy, is, is that you have to look at the devil in the details. If you look in, in consensus, we didn't just have a mortality benefit, but patients moved from what class four to a class three or a class two. That's huge in terms of the functional benefit that these drugs, I think, for a particular for an ACE inhibitor, had on overall quality of life of our patients. And at the time, again, based on New York Heart Association trials. And I really think that the VF2 trial was very well designed because of taking all of those differences and now putting them together in one trial where we could compare them and related to two active controls, because we do hear that a lot as a problem and it comes up later. So the goal, the dose achieved of enalapril and consensus was an average of 18 milligrams a day. Mm-hmm. And it's important to note that unlike with hypertension, enalapril was dosed split into two times a day. So really 10 BID became that gold standard dose of enalapril that we're going to hear become sort of the active treatment that no one cannot be on in trials moving forward. And, you know, in VHEF2, they achieved those huge doses of hydrazine and nitrate and this huge dose of enalapril. And, you know, that's another thing I want to highlight. It were, were the doses that were used 
of hydralazine and isosorbide in the VHEFT1 and VHEFT2. And they're pretty hefty. Yeah, so, so people remember VHEFT1 and VHEFT2 actually did four times a day dosing which is also something that we all look at now like, what, who can do that? But the hydralazine was a, a average dose in VHEFT1 of 270 milligrams a day, and the isosorbide dinitrate was 136. So, so now talking... I'm gonna ask you a question. Uh -huh. I'm gonna turn it on you for a second. <laughs> what is your opinion? I get this all the time. What about instead of using isosorbide dinitrate, substituting it for isosorbide mononitrate, so the generic MDUR? I think this is a great question. So when people have looked at this, a ton of people have good theories on which component is helping you and why. Mm -hmm. I fall in a nitrate camp where I think this is low nitric oxide and hydralazine may really prevent that nitrate tolerance from developing. And there's a lot of good pharmacology literature on that. And therefore, once daily MDUR doesn't last you all day, and no, so we've got that nitrate-free interval built You in. have a nitrate-free interval, which about that. <laughs> we all think you want, but in this case, you don't really want that. And so oh. you, you really need a more frequent dosing. So if I am sort of forced to go to MDR, I tend to still dose at BID. And I go. think I prefer just saying this is your one drug combo and just doing them both three times a day, which most of us have extrapolated it to three times a day just because... It's there aren't humans perfect. who can take four times a day. <laughs> There's actually a very old article that's published in the Journal of Cardiac Failure. They combined the VHEFT1 and 2 trials together and then looked to see what was actually driving the benefit. And in particular, this is where the impetus came for the AHEF trial because what really drove the benefit in VHEFT1 were the African-Americans. They were the ones that really drove that mortality benefit. And then when you looked at the VHEFT2, it was primarily going to be the um, Caucasian descent, those patients that drove that benefit. And so I do wanna say, and it's a, it, it, gosh, it's an old one published in 1990, but it combined the data and looked to see if there were any racial ethnic differences. And it was really that that was the impetus for the AHEF trial. No, then um, let's talk about AHEF next, because I think um, that was going to be one of my, my questions for you eventually is, um, given VHEF2, did we just drop them? But I think you've just explained exactly the patient population that through subgroup analysis and through combining that data, we found something interesting. And I think authors of the AHEF study deserve a lot of um, credit for saying, then let's study that prospectively. Absolutely. And what did they, what did they, cause their entity was slightly different. So maybe you can share with people what exactly they used and what they studied. Absolutely. You know, there are two, two caveats I want to say first on this trial is number one, it's one of the largest studies we have in heart failure. And number two is the fact that these patients were very well treated in terms of their background therapy. They were on MRA, beta blocker, ACE or an ARB. And then the other thing is, is that women have been excluded throughout the history of heart failure. But in this trial with AHEF, the number of African-American women was huge. But these were individuals, again, who were what we would call, quote, by the study, self-declared African-American. And they had to have class three or four heart failure. Alrighty, and they had to be on background medicate background. As I mentioned, these were patients that were on maximum. And then again, they were randomized to receive either this drug, this combination drug of Fidel, 
um, versus that of placebo. And again, because the numbers were so very high, very well-powered study looking at all-cause mortality, looking at quality of life, looking at hospitalization, looking at improvement in overall symptoms. I mean, it is an, an, an amazingly done study. And, I, and it was so dramatic, the benefits that it actually term, they terminated that study early. What, at three years versus at five years? A lot of people overlook that blood pressure was still fairly high. So when we talk about having a patient on maximal guideline-directed medical therapy for heart failure, often their blood pressure is a limiting standpoint. But here it was an average of 120 systolics at baseline. They had room. We didn't get the, you know, we didn't have so many hypotensive people in that being added on it, but um, we also noticed demographic differences in the blood pressure. So it's important to know that we're still a little bit of room in this patient population to add on and have that significant difference. Yeah, the one thing I always think about now, now looking with all the data that we have, I call it money. I'm like, in patients with heart failure, there are three things in terms of their money and like money. You want to, you know, again, we're not going to spend money like crazy. And so the, one of the big three is serum creatinine, potassium, but more important is blood pressure. And, in, and unfortunately, that's one of the things that you've got to take into account when choosing your appropriate pharmacotherapies. Yeah. And you know what? You bring up something that I always like to point out to people in these trials, which is if you look at the average change in blood pressure, these mm -hmm. didn't have a huge hemodynamic impact. No. So look, we're looking at changes of no more than like six in systolic blood pressure for ACE inhibitors and hydrazine nitrate. If you look, it's almost neutral. Yeah. So that preload afterload, they are definitely doing something to the pathophysiology that we did not understand at the time. Nope. And now just have like the beginnings of understanding that they're important to um, have that hemodynamic effect is not all what we're seeing. And, and you know, you're bringing up a really good points. Again, one of the questions that I usually get asked is, well, why are we looking at African-Americans? And the reason being is, is there's several pathophysiologic reasons. Um, number one, African-Americans tend to develop heart failure very early in their life and they present with more severe like class three class four and then the other thing too is even when you control socioeconomic variables the mortality and rehospitalization is much higher compared to that of other ethnicities and then the path that we now understand the pathophysiology behind it is because number one as you already mentioned there is a lack of production in nitric oxide this endothelial nitric oxide synthetase issue uh, is particularly diminished within African Americans. We know that their heart failure may not always be driven primarily by angiotensin II, but maybe by endothelin and other cytokines that can be driving it. And then again, um, number three is the whole salt, sodium, you know, that whole thing that we tie back in from blood pressure issues. And then also they, believe it or not, they, uh, African Americans tend to produce, uh, they produce a lot of, uh, messenger RNA that increases and enhances the amount of fibrosis. And so they have a fair amount of fibrotic disease. So there's a lot that goes into this. And now we realize that, again, with hydrolyzine isosorbide, and as you pinned already at that, that the mechanism may not just be preload afterload, but maybe a nitrate providing that nitrate donor through the nitrate, but also then protect having a protective effect an antioxidant effect with the hydralazine 
We also know that African-Americans tend to have a lot more free radicals that can eliminate the beneficial effects of nitric oxide. So it, it's interesting. I, I mean, again, all of this was something we somewhat knew, but we never had an outcomes trial to show it does that correlate to mortality. And it absolutely did. 30, 35% reduction in mortality, that's huge. Feel like there's more to the story? Well, stay tuned for CardioScript's next episode, part two of vasodilators and HEFREF. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.